there was almost no way to share news. And you have to remember, this is like 1980 when I arrived in Nashville. We don't have the Internet, so we don't have social media. You know, news travels at a pace that uh, would seem lethargic <laughs> to us in, in this day and age. But this is the way it was. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of The Zach Kuhn Show. Thanks for tuning in. Due to limited technology in this quarantine, I am currently recording this intro on my iPhone in my closet, so bear with me. Anyway, if you live in Nashville and you work in the music industry, you likely read Music Row every single day for the updates. And as Sonu has created my own newsletter, The Nashville Briefing, I was curious about who created Music Row and how did they do it? So I tracked down founder David Ross and I talked to him about how he went from being a broke songwriter expecting a child to creating one of the most trusted brands in country music news. Okay, let's dive in. So I was using yeah. online, we actually have something in common, which I didn't know. Did you go to Berkeley College of Music? Yes, I did. Uh, I went to Berkeley. Uh, well, you know, <clears throat> if you go back a ways, uh, a long ways, <laughs> I uh, first I went to college. I went to I got a, uh, a BS in economics at the Wharton School, and then this was like graduating in 1970, uh, and then sort of veered off. Uh, on the road as a musician. And somewhere a year or two after that, I was living in Boston and, uh, you and play? Berkeley. Guitar. Guitar. And sang and, and wrote and all, you know, kind of was in the whole thing. Uh, but uh, I really didn't spend too long. I'd spent just enough time at Berkeley to be dangerous, you know, I mean, about a year. Uh I, it probably, in retrospect, would have been a good thing to spend more time there for me. But uh, but it was great. I loved it. What what was your experience at Berkeley like? Well, I always joke because the saying at Berkeley is that only the failures graduate uh, learn a lot of great information. I always tell people, like, you need the basic fundamental harmony to kind of exist in the music industry. So in Berkeley, that's harmony one and two. That's secondary dominant chords, your major and minor modes, and and, you know, that theory to me is the essential theory to have. And then once you get into, you know, sub fives and harmonic major and all these other colors that you have because Miles Davis sneezed that on a record once, now we have to study it. Then it starts to become a little bit like, okay, let's get out and play and hit the road or let's, let's go into the rehearsal room. You know, for me, it was great. All of a sudden, diatonic chords took shape, and I understood a lot of those basic things that you were just discussing. And, you know, it gives you kind of, it's kind of like uh, packing your suitcase to uh, to go on vacation. You know, you maybe you don't have all the items you need, but you got enough to kind of cover. Right. Okay, wait, so you go to Berkeley, and then and then you were there for a year, and then did you hit the road right afterwards? Yeah, I was up in New England for almost 10 years on the road and uh, playing in bars and really kind of, yeah, I mean, the reality is I sort of left college and wanted to be a musician, but I really hadn't done that. So I was kind of starting at ground zero. And uh, 
I guess about 10 years later is when I moved to Nashville. I kind of realized, I think, that uh, playing in these bands was was really not where I wanted to end up. And uh, so we moved to Nashville, and I wanted to learn to be a better songwriter. And I thought Nashville was the place to do that. And uh, I think I was right on the money on that one. Nashville is, is a great place to learn how to be a songwriter. So when you moved to Nashville, I mean, we'll talk about Music Row and, and you know, that whole piece of it. But when you moved to Nashville, was there a trade complication or, or when people would get signed or when news would happen, would it be word of mouth or how would people find out about what was going on at the time? It was absolutely amazing to me. There was, there was precious little. Uh, there was almost no way to share news. And you have to remember, this is like 1980 when I arrived in Nashville. We don't have the internet, so we don't have social media. We, you know, news travels at a pace that uh, would seem lethargic <laughs> to us in, in this day and age. But this is the way it was. And Billboard had uh, maybe a half a page dedicated to Nashville in their entire magazine each week. And it would just have the very top uh, of the mark things that were happening. You know, a couple of major artist situations, and that would be it. And, you know, so there was a huge opportunity to connect or better connect the community. And and Nashville was such a community at that time. I mean, I, I believe it still is. But back then, it was like, it was so close-knit that uh, everybody was was working together. And, and it was, I think Nashville in many ways was yet to prove itself uh, at that time as well. I mean, this, this is really early 1980, if you go back. So for me, you know, <laughs> I sort of wandered in there hoping to become a songwriter or a professional songwriter. And uh, I was found myself hanging out on the front steps at Combine Music. Uh, I met Kent Blasey, a young Kent Blasey, I should say. And we wrote a few songs together. Uh, I wrote a few songs with Bob DiPiro. Uh, both of those guys went on to do great things. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, and I went on to ultimately do Music Row Magazine. And it's kind of interesting the way it happened because I was sitting on those front steps, if you will. And, uh, and when I kind of found out that I was going to be a dad and that's wow. when it struck, that's when it struck me that, uh, you know, maybe I was going to have to actually start thinking about some kind of, uh, revenue streams for our family. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's such an obvious thing, but I got to tell you when it strikes you and you are whatever age, it sort of, it hits in a little different way than the sort of obvious way. Anyway, so I started looking for a part-time job. Uh, I couldn't find any part-time jobs that I wanted to do. I was like 31 or 32 years old, I think, at that time. And, you know, I'd done over the years, I'd driven cabs, I'd waited on tables, I'd done different things like all musicians do in their 
uh, as they go through all the, the different machinations. But, you know, I just said to myself, I'm not doing that stuff anymore. There's nothing wrong with it, but I'm not doing it. So that was great. It left me unemployable. Uh, that's when I started the magazine, kind of out of desperation. And I didn't even think of it as a magazine. I just thought of it kind of as a little uh, as a little sheet that I would start. So it started out as literally one piece of paper, uh, and it was like a little telephone book listing, and that's all. There were no articles. It was it was so primitive. Uh, it was just a directory, basically. Yeah, it was called Music Road Directory, the first issue, actually. And I, I think, and did, I mean, well, I, yeah. I was just going to say, I think I made $30 on the first issue. Okay, how and did I went $30 off it? Because <laughs> we sold ads. I, I mean, I walked around, and, and people, you know, I'd go to all these different uh, stores and places and, and buildings, like, you know, and people would say to me, this will never work. People do, have done this before, and we bought ads, and then we never hear from them again. And I said to him, so, hey, listen, uh, buy an ad, but don't pay for it till I come back with the finished product so you know that that, it's, that it actually is going to happen. So they said, oh, okay. I mean, in those days, I think the ads, the first ads were like $15. <laughs> it was pretty meager. Anyway, so people trusted me, uh, and... Sure enough, I showed up and, you know, it started happening monthly. Uh, it struck me after doing it two months in a row that we were going to have to add some new things to this to keep it fresh. And that's... Okay, wait, so, so you're, so you're doing this directory and how are you compiling the names or how are you figuring out who's going to go in it or how are you getting their information? Like how, how does the thing come together? Well, I, I mean, you know, building a business is, is really a, it's all about creating systems and being logical. That's the main thing. And so I thought, wow, how do we print this stuff? Well, I don't know. So I went to a place called Copies Unlimited uh, that uh, they just tore it down, actually, a couple of months ago. But it was over uh, near 21st, uh, 20th, actually, I think. And, you know, they knew how to do that stuff. So... I used to go in there and watch them while they did it. And they laid out the first couple of issues for me. And then I, then I figured, Hey, I can do this. And so I started to do it because there was no desktop publishing. There were no computers. There was no word processing at that point. It was a, <laughs> all the systems are even hard to imagine at this point, the way it worked. But anyway, so we started doing it and we started adding you know, things like who's in the studios and just all kinds of things like that. And I'd call around and start finding it out and bingo. Um, I think, honestly, the most amazing thing that happened out of that time period was I couldn't afford to mail these things because it was, you know, we were sending them out everywhere. So I used to hand-deliver them up and down 16th and 17th and 18th and go to every single office and hand, hand them a stack for free. So it was like, when you think about it, it was kind of like social media before there was Internet because I got to know every single receptionist 
hand person who was in the front of the office at every company. I knew where everybody was. And these people over the next 15 and 20 years became the leaders in the town. So it just, it was amazing. Uh, without realizing it, I had uh, kind of created a, a network of friendships and uh, and just people that really became, uh, you know, really friends, really. So that first, that first year, it's purely that, that fact sheet that you're creating, that you're sending out, you're hand-delivering it to the offices on 16th and 17th. And at a certain point, you know, now you guys have um, the office on, you know, the row and employees and, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that part of it. But at what point did, did you go, holy cow, like this is maybe going to start to grow where I'm going to, like who was the first person that you hired onto the team? You know, I did have a moment like you're describing. It happened about eight months into it. There was nobody hired. It was still me at that point. And the uh, that was the month that uh, we actually had our first cover. And uh, by then it was about 12 pages. Uh, it was still black and white. And that's when I all of a sudden realized, I think, I like to laughingly say I had a board of directors meeting, which was, of course, me, myself, and I. And I said, hey, uh, this is really fun. I couldn't believe how people were reacting to it. I mean, everybody in the town was so supportive and maybe recognized, hey, this could be a really something we really need. So, I mean, it just it, it was incredible. And I thought to myself, you know, this is really fun. I could, if I rolled up my sleeves, maybe I could really make something out of this. And that was, I think, the moment when I really, you know, that was sort of that moment where I said to myself, yeah, yeah, maybe I can do this. Let's give this a serious try. But it took a long time. Uh, building a magazine like that was, you know, was not a fast process. I think it was three years before we had a single ad from a major label. Uh, I mean, you know, it was a, it was a slow process, but I, hey, who I was like, oh, yeah. well, go ahead. Oh, no, well, tell me, tell me what you were going to say. You know, what's really interesting is, um, there are so many, uh, steps along the way, right? But uh, for us, I think what was a really big thing was, you know, in the 90s, the early, like 1991 was probably when country music really exploded. And it was kind of like, you know, we were sort of like, Music Row Magazine was coming out once a month at that point. Once a month was perfect for that time period. And uh, all of a sudden, labels started, you know, it was sort of like we were a sailboat in the middle of the lake. We had our sails up, but there wasn't much wind. And then all of a sudden, the wind really started to blow. And that was when the magazine really took off, because we had built the boat, and we, we were ready to go, and then 
uh, you know, it was like, I guess what it was really, the big thing that happened was SoundScan. SoundScan happened in 1991. And up until that time, the way that the process they had for determining how many albums were sold everywhere was imperfect, let's just say. Tremendously imperfect. Uh, but SoundScan all of a sudden started really counting all these albums in a much more reliable fashion. And all of a sudden, the whole industry saw how many albums this kid, Garth Brooks, was selling. And, boy, within a year or two, we had 25 labels, label imprints in Nashville. Each one, unlike the imprints today, where they're all in the same office, back then, the imprints had their own office, their own staff, their own budgets. And for a trade magazine like us, it was really great. We All of a sudden, we had so much attention and so much to write about. I mean, there was so much going on for us to cover. So it was just, it was just a wonderful synergy that kind of all happened at that point. Okay, wait. I want to I wanna talk more about that, but... You started the magazine in 1981, is that correct? Was that when the first tip sheet was delivered out yeah. to everyone? And then it's now you're real. talking about the 90s, so that's a decade later. So for that full decade, is are you still running the thing every week and you're just trying to piece it together? And like you said, you're trying to build build the boat. Like, what did that decade look like? <laughs> I you said eight months in, you had this opinion, you had this epiphany that this could become a big thing. Like, for that for that next decade, like, how did that play out? You know, it's crazy, Zach, because by today's standards, you just it's hard to comprehend. But it, it didn't come out every week. It came out every month. And it was just print. And we just had... Uh, and, and the crazy thing about it is that that was... That pace was the perfect pace for what was going on in the world at that time. Today, obviously, the time value of news is closer to about four minutes instead of four weeks. But back then, it was like four weeks, you know, and it altered. Uh, throughout the course of the magazine, We I messed with anything and everything as I felt it was no longer uh, fitting whatever the times required because, like everything else, if you're providing a service, then it's got to be something that serves everybody. And if you're not doing it in a way that optimizes that, then then you better have changed or you're going to change. <laughs> People are not going to be interested in what you're doing if you can't keep up with the world. So, of course, as time went on, we started to come out twice a week. Then uh, we became internet savvy. I think we were the first publication in all in Nashville to do desktop publishing. Uh, you know, I mean, on and on. We, I created the first database-driven website where everything was integrated. Uh, this was like in around 2000. Nobody had stuff like that. Uh, not only did the website integrate subscriptions and news and everything, it created HTML newsletters for us. And all of a sudden, we had breaking news <laughs> because I could send out emails and nobody had it. Billboard didn't have it. 
R&R didn't have it, which was big at the time. Uh, it gave us like three or four years to ride the breaking news thing. Uh, it was phenomenal. It was okay, amazing. wait, I want to talk, I want to talk all about that because I feel like when I talk to you now, you're always ahead of the technology curve and you're always sort of pushing the boundaries of what should be being done at that time being. Um, but so it, so in the eighties, I'm assuming that you, you know, you had your kid and, and you said, okay, I need to build something that's going to sustain me. And for that decade, uh, in the eighties before the boom of the nineties hit, was the magazine profitable? Like was the company working during that time? Oh yeah. I, we never had a month that we lost money. Never. Now, and purely because you, you were hand delivering it and you were taking ads and you said, I'm going to hand deliver this to everyone on the row. And that was basically the business model at the time. That's how it started out. Yeah. I mean, I always took, you know, it was, it, I used the bathtub theory of business, right? If the money coming in fills the bathtub and the drain is emptying it, you don't want the drain to be bigger than the, the, than the water coming in, right? Otherwise, the, the right. tub is empty. And I always thought to myself, it's going to be a really depressing feeling to have worked my ass off all month and have made zero. So I tried to do everything I could uh, to see that that didn't happen. Sometimes that meant just flat out not giving up, you know, when things didn't go right. Instead of saying, hmm, you know, I can't do this, uh, I just went back to the drawing board and said, all right, I got to call somebody else. I got to talk to someone else. I got to find a way. Right. That was kind of the, and, you know, <laughs> let's not downplay the fact that the town, I mean, I, I remember this so clearly. The town was and has been always so wonderful to me. You know, I mean, because uh, the town has always supported me. And, you know, it's been like a two-way street. I've always felt this place is so amazing and the talents here are so incredible that to do anything less than the absolute best that you can just isn't going to work. It just isn't going to be enough. you got to do your very, very best. So... You know, I, I've really lost to this place because I don't think it could have worked anywhere else. I think I was just, you know, maybe destined to do it and really, really lucky to uh, have had the support of the town to make it happen. Unbelievable. Okay, so the boom of the 90s hit, my favorite era and, and decade of country music so everything's exploding. You were saying there were there were you know twenty plus imprints with full staff and everything. And how was that affecting the trade magazine? You said that there was more news to write about than ever before. Like like what did that look like in the time? Well, it looked like color ads up and down. It looked like we started coming out twice a week. I mean twice a month. I'm sorry, instead of monthly. You know, it's just the pace of things started. And you know what else happened that we, that we shouldn't leave out? In the middle 80s, just before this sound scan era, uh, all the publishing, com or a lot of the publishing companies in Nashville that had been small indie companies started getting bought up. And the town started becoming more and more corporate. I think maybe Tree was the first one 
now it's Sony Music Publishing. But uh, there was, I mean, it just, they, they started to get purchased in droves. And, uh, and that changed the character of Nashville quite a bit as well. You know, I mean, it had been very laid back, and now all of a sudden there was an air of corporate uh, management sort of infiltrating slowly. And uh, you begin to notice that the label heads, for example, by the mm, pretty much by the, the beginning of the 90s, label heads up until that time had been in Nashville. Label heads had been, you know, really A&R uh, producer types famous producers, uh, almost every one of them. And after that, that sort of changed. The business was getting bigger. And I think the the label uh, owners, if you will, in New York and L.A. said, hey, we need more of an MBA type, marketing type of person to run these labels. And that's what happened. Uh, and today, I think that's what you see, you know, people like Joe Galante and uh, Mike Dungan and uh, you know, I don't know, we could, uh, Esposito and all these people are much more, uh, geared towards marketing and, uh, you know, running a large company than they are producers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Some of you may know, and I mentioned it earlier, that I run a newsletter called The Nashville Briefing. It comes out three times a week, and it covers everything from country music to Nashville to the global music scene at large. So if you want a front row seat to everything happening in our industry, you can go to nashvillebriefing.com to subscribe. Okay, back to the show. So in the 90s, when everything is exploding for country music, how many people were working at the magazine? You know, maybe we had four. It changed as we went along. And to be honest with you, I'd have to go through all the the math. I used to find that it worked better to have uh, a lot of freelance writers because I knew that the having good copy was what it was all about, good uh, articles, and uh, less uh, in-house staff. So we found a balance with all that stuff. And, uh, I mean, there were... The stories of stuff are amazing, Jack. Uh, you know, the for example... Um, <laughs> I remember, like, being uh, on Kenny Chesney's bus, and uh, all of a sudden, Joe Walsh comes in and sits down. And Oh, my thinking, God. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> here I am, like, you know, this guy, a guitar god, right? And I'm thinking, hmm, this is probably the only chance I'm ever going to have to actually talk to Joe Walsh like this and that just him and me and Kenny and two or three other people. And he's like, you know, as you might expect, he's pretty quiet and laid back. And I asked him one or two questions and he just sort of just grinned at me and didn't say anything really. And I thought, how am I going to get him to say something? And finally I said, so are you going to play uh, a Strat or a Les Paul tonight or what? <laughs> Boom. 
he just opened right up. And then he started talking for like five minutes. He was going to play the Les Paul because everyone else in the band had fenders and stuff. And he liked the way it sang and it cut through. And, you know, it was like a cool moment. That's a great story. Well, so, I mean, were you... yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the probably one of the biggest things I think to learn that's useful to everybody in the industry, whether you're doing a magazine or anything else, you know, when you're fortunate enough to sit in a, in a special chair, uh, where you're the center of attention or have a, uh, get a great deal of attention, you know, whether it's being a, a publisher of a magazine or, you know, a top label person or a booking or a manager or whatever it is, it's really important to remember that, uh, you know, <laughs> the chair has a lot to do with what's going on in your day-to-day world. And, you know, to to be conscious of that and to treat people the best that you possibly can. Because, you know, like, for example, in my case, Despite my amazing good looks and great personality, uh, the chair I can personally attest to both. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might be the only one. But in any case, uh, the chair I was sitting in had an awful lot to do with the fact that I was invited everywhere into everything and, you know, had all kinds of opportunities. Uh, it was all because of the chair. Of course, I knew that. But uh, it's a good thing to be aware of every so often because this industry can really make you feel special and keeping a little perspective on on it all can be, I think, very worthwhile. So while you're creating this magazine and you're creating this trade publication, I knew you said you originally moved to Nashville to be a songwriter. So is any part of you kind of missing that songwriter bug as you're, you know, busting your ass for this? Or were you <laughs> so focused that, that you didn't really have, even have time to think about it? It was somewhere in between those two uh, options because, yeah, I always kind of thought to myself, Man, I, I don't know, but I think I could really do this. And, but yet I was so, uh, I was really enjoying the magazine and and doing what I was doing. I mean, it was exhilarating, really. So it was kind of like, well, look, you don't get to do, or at least most people don't get to do everything at once. Uh, If I can, if I got to do one of these, I want to do it as good as I can. So uh, I was thrilled to do the magazine, but I was also very lucky to learn a hell of a lot about country music and songwriting and I mean to be in the middle of this you know so it was a really great opportunity to not only meet the writers but I mean to listen to you know I mean all the music of the town I've I absorbed it all you know I mean it came my way all the time and it was really it was great it was a really great opportunity because uh, I didn't grow up with country music I grew up in New England so it was kind of new to me, uh, but boy, I really uh, think, if I remember back, it was uh, Vern Gosden, Chiseled in Stone. That album, I think that was the first 
country album where I really said, holy shit, I get it. Now yeah. I really see what it is. And, I mean, that was such a great record. I would refer anybody back to it uh, who wants to just kind of <laughs> get a taste of what uh, authentic country uh, was at that time. But, uh, yeah, I, so, I mean, you know, it's like I absolutely adored doing the magazine. I don't regret it for a second. It was what an opportunity and, and what a uh, thrill. But, you know, writing songs was something that I had thought that I wanted to do, but it just didn't work out at that time. You know, sometimes things have to find the right, uh, the right place in the scheme of things for you. Right. So any other, I mean, the Joe Walsh story is a great one. Any other stories of being on a bus or being somewhere with a legend or someone who meant a lot to you? <laughs> well, here's one. So I'm out at a, uh, at a CMA board meeting. I don't remember where it was, but most of the meetings were out of town in those days. Uh, this was, I'm, I'm going to say this was, boy, I don't know exactly. It was, maybe it was around 2000. Uh, or 95, somewhere in the middle there. Anyway, and Tim Dubois, uh, finds me somewhere in the, in this cocktail party or something we were at, right? And he says, hey, I want you to come up to my hotel room. I'm bringing a couple of other people up there. And I got this, this new artist. We're about to sign him. Uh, he's going to play a couple of songs for you. I want you to hear what he's doing. <laughs> so I went, oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds like fun. So I get up there, and there's this young kid. He's a Belmont student, or he's just finishing up at Belmont. And, uh, you know, we saw so many different, there's so many talents in this town, and you think to yourself, okay, let's see what this one's about. Right. This kid, this kid starts playing guitar, first of all, and it's obvious that he's a really great guitar player, and then he (laughs) sings this song, called The Fishing Song. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, it turned out to be this kid, Brad Paisley, right? My my favorite. <laughs> who has gone on to be a pretty large star, I would say. And uh, so there he was, you know, playing two or three of the songs that became big hits off of his first album. And they hadn't even recorded the album yet at that time. So that was a really fun story for me. Wow. You know, a really cool one to be... And then there was a time I um, heard Taylor Swift with Scott Borchetta on the steps of the Country Music Hall of Fame. Uh, there was some sound and, yeah, I can't think of the name, but it was a NASCAR slash country music event in town. And these guys on motorcycles from NASCAR had come uh, like a little parade sort of in front of the museum. And Scott had this young girl. He didn't even have a record label at this point. He'd been, uh, I think, excused <laughs> from MCA, or some would say fired. And uh, he was sort of in between things. And this girl sang, uh, I guess she sang America the Beautiful or something like that. And I thought to myself, wow, this kid really sounds pretty good. Uh, she's like 14 years old. She's so composed. And uh, 
turned out to be Taylor Swift, who, uh, who was, it was obvious even back then when she was 14 that she was really unusual. Now, I'm sure you saw a lot of artists in their very early stages. Everyone is turning to you because, like you said, you're in the chair and they're bringing you all these young artists. When you see a Brad Paisley, when you see a Taylor Swift, are they all above the average of what you're seeing? Or were you seeing a lot of artists that, you know, you thought were amazing that didn't get their break? Or, you know, how far above the rest were some of these artists like Taylor and Brad? Everybody has their favorites, of course, but almost all the new artists would come to our conference room and do a little press tour performance. You know, they would it'd be kind of like getting prepared for the radio tour. Right. And yes, Taylor, when I remember very clearly when she came in uh, and did her, uh, you know, played for us and, and told story and stuff and she left. And the rest, and all of us looked around the room and we just kind of went like, wow, what was that? And I mean, it, yes, those two were both very exceptional. But some of the exceptional ones also don't make it. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty hard, it's pretty hard to tell sometimes what that special thing is. But in the case of Brad and Taylor, it was I think really a fire hydrant could have figured that one out. They were, they were both uh, sure. just really, really powerhouses. Okay, so going back a little bit, so we're in the '90s, the boom of country music, um, and you know things are busier than ever. When do the is is that when the events come in? Was that under your control when you when music groups are doing like the women's lunch and the awards and that? Was that your doing at that point? Uh, the, uh, the women's luncheon, actually, Sherrod did that one. Uh, but almost everything else I started, uh, that was done, or most of the things, the awards and all these different things started way early, you know, all at different times, really. But, uh, uh, Sherrod has, has had a, just a wonderful, uh, effect on the whole thing. I love what he's doing, and, uh, the women's events is a very good example of some of the innovative things that he's added to what's going on. Uh, but no, a lot of the things, you know, you look at them and it's like, you know, it's the, the 20th annual this or the 25th annual that or something. And, uh, and that's because they start, you know, a lot of those things started early on. You know, it's and did you about, build, oh yeah. no, go ahead. Did you build also the um, the Music Road chart that focuses on secondary radio and kind of highlights the artists that are on the rise? Was that something that you put together? Yep. I, I went out, had the software created, uh, recognized the need for it, and, yeah, put that whole thing together. We had lots of charts over the years. We had an album chart that was... Uh, albums and tracks off of the albums. And I mean, you know, I was always trying to find a niche that was, uh, that was not being filled. And, uh, the mainstream charts, uh, were pretty well, uh, that space was pretty well occupied by Billboard and, uh, and in, in more recent times by, uh, 
air check. So, I mean, it was always a question of trying to uh, find, you know, a chart niche that would be useful and uh, was not being covered somewhere else. And I, one example might be the songwriter chart on Music Row right now. Right. Okay, so it's the boom of the 90s, and we're, we're moving through the 90s, and then in 2000, you were saying you decided to take the whole thing online, and you guys were really one of the first magazines to go online. So how, how did you sort of come to that conclusion that, I mean, now it's so obvious in hindsight, but at the time, I imagine you probably had to convince some people, or, or you had to kind of figure it out, and, and you know, what, how, like, why did you, how did you come up with that idea that the magazine had to go online? Well, I guess, uh, fortunately, uh, since I was the only one running it, and uh, I didn't have to convince anybody except me. And uh, so I was convinced. <laughs> and uh, the trick was, in the year 2001, uh, nobody, a lot of people up and down Music Road did not have an email address. So it was like, oh, my God, we're going to start sending this stuff out via email. But I don't even have email addresses. And we had to work like crazy to get email addresses from people. And at the same time, let's say we had a third of our, of our uh, it started out maybe 30% of our readership subscribers got email addresses. So we'd send out this Friday news specially to them as a PDF file. But then we had to go rush and print uh, the other 60%, fold them, put labels on them, stamp them, and send them out the door every Friday so that everybody else would get theirs on Monday. And, right. you know, over the course of 18 months, we started to get a lot bigger percentage of email addresses and, and send less and less until finally at one point I just said, all right, if you don't have an email address yet, you're out of luck. You're not getting the row. <laughs> right. You're not getting our special Friday report. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, some of the people up and down the row would get, uh, they, they have their email all printed out, just like, you know, the way, um, the way they would have their correspondence set up. You know, if it came in on the, from the mail, from regular mail, the secretary would, but in this case, they'd have their, their secretary or assistant print everything out, and hand it to them. I mean, it was amazing, Zach, the way, you know, people didn't understand what it was. And uh, we used to laugh about it some somewhat, but, you know, we worked our way through. Uh, you know, the other thing that was really interesting, in the early 90s, we started Rofax. So right. there was no, no email then, but the fax became a thing. So I found out how to get a company that would mass fax to like hundreds of numbers all at once. And we started sending out uh, the row facts on Fridays via fax. And that caused a stir. Because again, all of a sudden, you know, we were talking about the time frame of news, right? That monthly was fine in the 80s. Now in the 90s, I could find out breaking stories and get them out that afternoon. And that was powerful. So, you know, all these things were like, they were just being logical and staying up with what was going on and trying to find 
the best way to serve our readership. So for the the 2000s, you're moving online. I remember you were telling me the story about how you were one of the first Twitter accounts, right? You launched Music Row on Twitter. You know, you're you're moving everything more and more online. Now, today, there's only six magazines that go out a year, and everything is basically online. There's, the, 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 you know, two emails a day. There's so much news that we're getting two emails a day from Music Row right now. And then you decide in 2012 that to... to sell the company and, and, to, and to partner up with a larger publisher, how, how did you know that that was the right time or how did you make that decision that, you know, that's what you were going to ultimately do? You know, that's a great question. Um, I'm thinking actually it was 2010 when I sold it. 2000, okay. My apologies. I think it was, no, no, I'm, I'm honestly, I, I would, we'll say it was 2010. I think that was it. Anyway, what happened was this, um, you know, uh, I don't remember exactly how old I was at that point, but I was in my 60s at that point. And I thought to myself, man, I really love running this magazine and doing this whole thing, but I've been doing it for 30 some odd years. And I think I've gotten as good at it as I'm going to be. And I had it going pretty good. I mean, it was, uh, it was by every metric you want to measure it, it was doing pretty well. And, uh, so I thought, wouldn't it be great <clears throat> to, uh, to see if there was another chapter that, uh, in my life, another something to do, uh, that would be a fresh new challenge and, uh, you know, or, you know, and I thought, or do I have to just wait until I fall over and roll into a hole and, and be done with it? <laughs> so I started looking uh, for a way to uh, to sell the publication and find, it wasn't just about selling it. It was about <clears throat> finding somebody to, uh, you know, who would kind of, it was like, it was like giving a member of your family to somebody in a way. And so I, we had sure. to find somebody that would, <clears throat> excuse me, let me drink some water here, that would be able to really run it properly and have the same feeling for the town and, how, and the industry and do the job, you know? Right. And how how did you go about finding that person? Well, it was a, uh, a very interesting story. But uh, a guy named Frank Bumstead, uh from Bumstead and McCready, yep. and you'll have to get the full name there. I don't remember the full name. That company, SBNM, the, the, the business management, yep. Those folks. Frank was instrumental in helping me uh, kind of package it and put it together in such a way that uh, we could do that. And, I mean, I've known Frank for a long time. He's, he's really an amazing treasure. Uh, and he and Marianne went out of their way to help me. And we found a, uh, a pretty big company here in town, uh, that was called Southcom. And they owned, uh, City Paper and they owned the Nashville Scene and all this stuff and Music Row ultimately. Uh, but of course, what had happened was I had to run it for like five years 
while they were kind of, you know, sort of handing off the baton, if you will. So it sure. was, it was, it was cool, except that, uh, we, I continued to be in charge of Music Row and it did great. And they continued to, uh, not have as good a luck with the rest of the portfolios that they owned. And ultimately, I think they reached a point where they, they were really in, in dire need of funds. And so they decided to sell Music Row. And at that point, uh, the CFO was Sherrod Robertson, the current uh, owner. And he saw what was going on with it and, and knew all the numbers and everything. And he stepped up and said, you know what? Uh, I'd like to buy this. And so it was great. So um, it all worked out to everybody's satisfaction, and Sherrod became the new owner. And that gave me a wonderful transition strategy. And the magazine, uh, a champion who really cared about it. And it was just such a wonderful win-win situation. And then it allowed me to face head-on the question of, hey, now what is next? So tell us. what. So you sell the magazine, and then you probably go, holy crap, I've been working on this for 30-plus years, and it's been the most consuming project of my life. And then, and then you go, I've now I've got all this time. How do you fill the time? <laughs> well, you know, the way – what is that great thing about, uh, you know, um, we're busy making plans, and, and God just laughs, right? Right. Because, of course, what happened was uh, my uh, parents had, had well, they were already, like, in their 90s, and uh, both of them passed away. And, you know, there was just a lot of things. For a couple of years there, I was extremely occupied and busy, and there wasn't even time to consider that big question. Uh, but then, finally, it did... Uh, kind of become front and center, and I guess I thought to myself, well, you came here originally to be a songwriter, and uh, I haven't seen that many songwriters start their careers at your age especially, but on the other hand, what do you get to lose, big guy, you know? Get out there and have some fun and write some songs. So, right. that's, so that's what I started doing, and... Uh, what great, great uh, choice it's been because it's just been so much fun. Uh, and, boy, I don't know. I've met so many great people. I mean, you know, it's the same thing with this town. It's just, it's so seductive, this town. Only this is from a whole other angle than I got to see it before. So it's, it's really been great for me. That's awesome. Well, I know times are crazy right now, and we seriously appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and um, and tell us the story of Music Row, because I know so many of us read it every day. It's a huge part of our life. There's so much that is covered in Billboard and Rolling Stone, but you know, there's, some, there's so much that is only covered in Music Row, and I think it's an important piece of a lot of people's daily routines and lives and and connection and all of that. So, well, so Thanks, David, we, really we, great. we thank you for, uh, for putting it together and, uh, and, and bringing it, you know, into all of our lives.
Well, right back at you. Uh, you know, this town deserved uh, the very best, and that's what I've always tried to do, and I know that's what they're doing now, you know. And, and I'm a big fan of what you, what's going on right now with, uh, the, with the Nashville briefing as well, you know. So keep up the great so work. So if you were going to start the Nashville briefing today, you know, what would you be doing in, uh, in 2020 during crisis? You know, I think what you're doing is trying to use uh, different kinds of channels to reach people, um, you know, trying to figure out, well, we're obviously you can't walk around and hand out pieces of paper to people, and there'd be no reason to do that now. So you're doing the same thing, but with the technology that's available, and that means podcasts, and that means emails, and that means social media, and, and all these things. It's, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's great. All the concepts stay the same. The tools are what change. So you just have to learn the concepts and then figure out what tools are going to help you uh, do them in the best way. Right. So what do you think? So Music Row right now is, is I, I feel like when I'm looking at Music Row, there's almost like this little bit of a internal battle they're having where it's like, okay, our thing is country music coverage, but there's this crisis going on. And, you know, how do you, we can't turn our back on it fully, but, but, you know, we've got to keep reporting that, you know, so-and-so is signing to a publishing company. What do you think is the duty of Music Row to be covering a national crisis in a time like this? Or do you think that, you know, the, their duty is to sort of keep reporting country music news and national news? Well, you know, I, first of all, I would hesitate to tell someone else who's running it what they ought to do. Uh, sure, sure. To say that, but... Uh, I think, you know, it's finding that sweet spot of uh, keeping your people informed, uh, especially how these larger issues are affecting the industry. You know, there should be a, uh, a, a combination because you don't want to try to be CNN or, uh, you know, a major news network. You want to try to tailor whatever it is you're looking at to find out the significance of it as it's affecting our industry. So that would probably be my first thought on what to do. Right. Well, we so appreciate you taking the time. This has been an absolute pleasure. And stay safe out there, and we'll let you know when this airs. And, and again, appreciate the time. It really means a lot to me. Thank you so hey, much. Hey, thank you, Zach. Uh, and continued success, man. Keep up the good work. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you're in luck because we have new ones coming out every single Tuesday. Next week, we have an amazing interview with Thomas O'Keefe, tour manager for acts like Train, Ryan Adams, Sia, Third Eye Blind, and Weezer. Tune in for some amazing rock and roll war stories. Special thanks to Justin Johnson for our theme music. And again, big, big thank you to David Ross for taking the time to talk to us. This episode literally would not have been possible without him. So again, thank you. Lastly, if you want to keep up with us and follow everything we're doing, give our newsletter a subscribe at NashvilleBriefing.com. You can follow us on socials. Everything is at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.